if you have even a modest sense of history, you cannot help but feel when you step into this pulpit that there are all kinds of ghosts around you, uh, holy ghosts, because they are great people from times past. And that makes it an awesome thing to stand here and an honor to stand in this pulpit. But I should tell you that for half a century and more, I've been standing in all kinds of pulpits, and I haven't stood in one yet that wasn't an honor. Each has its own quality of honor. It is the place of God's giving forth of the word. I grew up in a working-class neighborhood. As a result, I learned early some of the perils of the workplace. Those people who worked in the great meatpacking plants, or the women who worked the presses in the laundry and dry cleaning establishment that I entered time and again. One failure of thought, one distraction, one inept move, and they could be maimed or scarred for life. There was intimate peril in their work. As I grew older, became a pastor associated with varieties of people, I learned that there's intimate peril in all kinds of work. I remember a man who is now posthumously in the National Football League Hall of Fame. He said, you don't know how hard Sunday mornings are for me. I've been playing football for 20 years, yet I know that I twist my knee just a bit or another lineman falls on it and my career is ended. A police officer dedicated to his work said, most mornings I know that the day is going to be routine. Traffic tickets, parking tickets, helping children. But I know every morning when I leave the house that it could be my last day. It's that kind of job. I was preaching over a weekend in a small community in East Kentucky, a mining town, shaking hands in the sunlight, so bright and wonderful. The pastor said, that man you just shook hands with, tomorrow morning he'll go hundreds of feet into a mine and he will slide into a hole on his belly, just 18 inches deep, and he'll spend most of the day there. That, I said to myself, is intimate peril. It's more intimate than I could handle. And yet, there is Sunday morning. Thousands and thousands of Sunday mornings. Hundreds of times I have processed down the aisle in the regalia of the presiding officer or the preacher with the glamour and glory of the day. Hundreds of other times I have slipped out of a back room into the pulpit, sometimes to say something so momentous as the Lord is in his holy temple, and sometimes to say something as commonplace as, good morning, let's turn to hymn number 73. But in every instance, it's a perilous business. People have died doing this. 
The most memorable instance of the peril of this job happened to some of the earliest members of our clergy union. Not only were they early members of the clergy union, they were notable members. I wish I had something to compare with the heritage they had. They belonged to a good family. Their uncle Moses was just about everything. He was not only the leader of the people, the lawgiver, the one who could confront Pharaoh. More than that, if you're somebody who thinks that the altar is a sacred place, ponder a person who dares to say to God, show me your face. And God offers a counter offer and says, not my face, that would kill you, but you can see my back as I pass by. I never had an uncle like that. And their aunt, their Aunt Miriam, what a remarkable woman she was, the ultimate babysitter. She was a babysitter who gave up her job as quickly as she could, but it was by divine assignment that she did so. And when there were days of victory in the nation, she could swing a mean tambourine. I have no aunt like Aunt Miriam. And then their father. Aaron, anytime we talk about the clerical union, remember that he is number one. All of us have joined since him. He is the one that started the procession of the people who dare to appear at an altar in the name of God. But it wasn't just his family line that made their family line that made these two people outstanding. They had experiences right and left. They were there at the Red Sea, and they marched through on the dry ground. That would put awe into your life. They were present when the nation came to a place where there was water. I think of it now with Bangladesh. And the water was bitter, deadly, I expect. And at that place of deadly water, they saw their leader throw wood into the water, and the water became potable. I wonder if at that moment those two men, ecstatic in the spirit, may have had a vision of a day far down the line when God would throw into the bitter waters of the universe the ultimate wood and would make the waters of hell sweet by the wood of the cross. I wonder if they even sensed that because they were so near to glory. And they knew what it was to eat manna day after day. Men, you didn't have much variety, but the service was awesome. And they had it. And they were there when the Ten Commandments were given. Not right on the mountain, but very close. So they saw it for themselves. But more than that, there was a time when these two men went with Moses and Aaron and the 70 elders of Israel up into the mountain of God, and they saw the glory of God there. And the scripture says, and God did not destroy them, but they sat and ate and drank there. 
These people experience things that are just beyond imagining. I'm grateful for things that have happened to me in my lifetime. I, I have seen miracles of healing, bona fide miracles, no doubting them. I heard Billy Sunday preach, not Billy Graham, that's for kids, Billy Sunday. I heard Billy Sunday preach. I experienced once being embraced and receiving a holy kiss from the patriarch of Constantinople. It was awesome. But nothing like these people. All of which is to say, if somewhere someday you could take a poll of all those people who have ever lived and say, who is most likely to succeed spiritually, hands down, it would be Nadab and Abihu. They had it all going for them to be the ones who would carry the glory of God into the world. But they made a mistake one day, and it was a fatal mistake. They came into the altar of the Lord with a censer, incense and oil, and they lit it with unholy fire. And they began to wave the censer before God. And suddenly God sent fire that destroyed them. It is as if God said, you want to see fire? I'll show you fire. And they were killed. It was the end. It was a frightening, unbelievable thing. You ask yourself what they did that was so wrong. And the answer is partly in the language of the translations, but they don't fully help us. The New Revised Standard Version calls it unholy fire that they brought to God. Another translation, I think the NIV, says that it was unauthorized fire. Everett Fox, in his new translation of the Torah, says that it was outside fire, fire outside the purposes and plans of God. Whatever it was, apparently they got the idea that they could make a substitute for the plan of God, that what they did was as good as what God had told them to do. Now, how could they do this? These people, for instance, who wore clerical garments designed in heaven and who knew that the oil they used was of a formula that no one else should use for any purpose except the altar, that the incense they burned was an incense so sacred that if anybody else used it for personal pleasure, the writer says, it would destroy them. How could they, who knew all of this about the elements with which they were working, how could they think they could substitute something else? How could they who had seen the glory of God on the mountain with the 70 elders and Aaron and Moses, how could they dare to make a substitution? There's a partial answer, we think, in the continuation of the story. When God instructs Aaron that never, never shall people who are coming into the holy place drink wine or strong drink before they enter, which seems to suggest, at least, that they might have been intoxicated. 
They were drunk. If so, I want to tell you that the drunkenness of wine came after another more fatal drunkenness, the drunkenness of presumption. It's the drunkenness that comes to people who work with holy things until the holy other becomes common, until the sacredness of the divine becomes daily and average. It's the stuff we work with. To be intimate makes one in danger of being presumptuous. It is hard to be intimate with a person, with an institution, with God, without becoming presumptuous and stepping over boundaries. Their ultimate, ultimate drunkenness was the drunkenness of presumption. Now, I've been following their job for most of my life. And you've come to this place to train yourselves so you can engage in the same occupation. How did you dare to take on a job as frightening as this one? When you start dealing and working with holy things, what a hazard there is. As it happens, I am one of those preachers who would not use alcohol under any circumstances unless it would be a case of wine at a sacrament. So I have no fear that I would someday come into a sanctuary intoxicated. That's no danger to me. But I'm afraid of the other intoxicants that work on me as a preacher. The intoxication that comes from your office, from people telling you how wonderful you are, from people giving you the impression that you really do have a closer line with God than other people. The hazard of working so much with the elements of communion that you don't know that this is the body and the blood of our Lord. The danger of speaking the sacred words so frequently that those words become ordinary words. Indeed, for most of us, they become vehicles frequently for humor because they're the words we know best. And I don't know that I think God is offended by that. Centuries of the best rabbinical scholars did the same thing. And yet there is a point at which intimacy breeds presumption. And the intimate peril is the peril of intimacy, of getting so close to the sacred that we forget how sacred it is. So you can get drunk with applause, you can get drunk with ecclesiastical power, and when somebody says to you, you're such a wonderful preacher, or when you pray, it just seems like God is right here. Watch it, or you'll get as drunk as Nadab in the bayou. It happens. When I was in the eighth grade, I had an English teacher named Miss Morrison. 
as far as I know, she was not related to Henry Clay Morrison because that was Iowa. But one day she preached a short sermon to me that would have made Henry Clay Morrison proud. He would have claimed her as kin. I, I became disparaging of a fellow student who gave a not-too-bright answer in the class. And Miss Morrison rose up out of her desk, walked to where she was within arm's reach of me, put a finger almost in my face and said, Ellsworth Callis, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to put somebody else down? I think of that more times than I can tell you. And I think of it often as I approach the sacred business of preaching, of teaching, of reading the word, of giving a pastoral prayer, of passing out the elements of communion. Some voice says to me, Ellsworth Callis, who do you think you are to handle these sacred items? How do you have a right to touch the garment of God for other people. And I don't have a right, except if God's grace allows me. In a sense, I envy Nadab and Abihu. They lost their lives that might not be so bad. What frightens me as I look back over the years and think of times when a sermon was not the best I could do, or think of my reading of scripture without having read it beforehand so that I mumbled my way through it, or of times I have made pastoral prayers that were perfunctory, or of times when I have served Holy Communion without being smitten by the awe of it, I say to myself, is it possible that somebody lost their soul because you didn't stand at the altar of fire the way you should? Because you stood there at the altar of fire with false fire, outside fire. I am terrified that there is a hell but I almost think that I would rather go to hell than to think that my failures at the altar of God might have sent some other people to hell. We're in a particularly precarious time, all of us, because we live in the age of high presumption. Everybody thinks just now, especially in our nation, that the world is his oyster and that God should serve those oysters on half shell just when we want them. So we talk that way in the language of religion. Somebody says, I want to go where I'll get a blessing. Shame on you. Who said the worship service was so you could get a blessing? The worship service is to adore the Lord God. And if you get a blessing, be grateful. But it's incidental. It's not even second. It's incidental. We have only one business in this house.
It is to adore the Lord God every way we can. And if sometimes it makes us feel good, be glad. If sometimes it makes you feel that you need to crawl out, be very glad. If it reminds you that you are saved, be grateful. But if you don't feel a thing, that's all right too. Because you didn't come here to feel something. You came here to pay adoration to the only one who merits adoration. We have a problem to deal with in a presumptuous age when we think that the world ought to revolve around our benefits and our pleasure and our feeling good. Well, the reason, of course, that this is such a perilous job that you and I have is because the potential is so unbelievable. We pick up bread that somebody in the congregation has baked, or some wafers that we bought from some company by mail, and we take the juice that was poured into glasses, and we hold it out to people, and as we do, God is there, and life is there. The angels nod in embarrassment when we sing, and can it be, because they can't sing it. We recite words that may indeed drive back hell, and we offer prayers that may help people simply to enter into the presence of God. If you're dealing with that kind of power for good and for glory, you should expect that there would be peril in it, the peril of intimacy. But thank God for the power. Amen.